Welcome back to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Matthew, bringing you this episode. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. This episode features Oakland-based artist and writer Jenny O'Dell as she discusses her debut book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Jenny examines how, by paying a new kind of attention, our most precious and overdrawn resource, we can undertake bolder forms of political action, reimagine humankind's role in the environment, and arrive at more meaningful understandings of happiness and progress. Here is How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell. What I want to do is just give kind of a condensed version of the talk that turned into this book. Um, and then after that, just talk a little bit about how it turned into a book, um, which is kind of an odd story because my background is as a visual artist and not necessarily as a writer. And, and give a sense of what I'm trying to do with this book, which is not a book about putting your phone down. Um, we have enough of those. Um, but more about questioning our current notions of productivity altogether. And also just um, how to feel OK enough for long enough to figure out what it is that can be done uh, and who you need to talk to in order to be able to do that. This whole thing kind of started in late 2016 not long after the election and also uh, the ghost ship fire, which happened in Oakland, which is where I live. I'm sure many of you heard about that, but uh, it was a warehouse fire in which uh, 36 people died, and a lot of them were artists. Um, some of them were friends of friends of mine. And so there was this kind of like moment of paralysis. I obviously have a lot of friends who make things, and I think there was this feeling of like, Nothing that I could make or have made is of any importance <laughs> in this context. Um, and so I wasn't really sure what to do or say or make. And at that time, I was asked to submit a talk description for a talk that I would be giving at IO, EYEO <laughs> conference. Um, and I found that I had been going to this rose garden about five minutes from my apartment and sitting on this bench. Uh, doing nothing, uh, not reading, just sitting and kind of, you know, shell-shocked and like trying to process. So I submitted the talk title, How to Do Nothing, uh, without having a talk by that name. Uh, and then I spent the next couple months trying to figure out what this necessity was of me going to this place and how the space was different from the other spaces I was finding myself in. Um, and so there was a really uh, key quote that I came across around this time by Deleuze um, about the fact that, uh, or this idea of the right to say nothing um, and the right to not express oneself. It was something that uh, I hadn't really thought about before, the fact that sometimes the decision of whether or not to express myself at all wasn't exactly mine or didn't feel like it was mine to make. And, and that that's obviously a really big part of eventually having something worthwhile to say, is having the right to say nothing for some amount of time. So uh, I was thinking about this and how uh, I actually have had a long-standing relationship to doing nothing but in the context of art uh, and making nothing. So the type of art that I tend to make is almost like the opposite of something from nothing or, you know, like uh, putting something 
straightforwardly new in the world that I made. Um, I tend to work much more with context and creating new contexts for existing things. So I had been an artist in residence at the San Francisco Dump, otherwise known as Recology SF, and my project had been to pull 200 objects out of the dump that were at least somewhat identifiable and spend what became like an increasing amount of time monomaniacally researching where they were made, why they were made, what they're made out of, did they, did they have commercials on YouTube that you can watch? Like what, is, what can account for this object? And as you can see, it's kind of a mix of like, I just tried to get a good picture of like human stuff. Um, and someone who came to this exhibition, and, and as you can see, there are kind of these cards um, that you could, they're just QR codes that you could scan and get all this information while looking at the object. Uh, there was someone who came to the opening and asked, um, did you actually make anything or do you just put things on shelves? Um, and I was like, oh, I just put things on shelves. That, is, that describes everything I've ever done. <laughs> it actually describes the book. Um, you know, it's like I collect pieces of things and I reorder them. That's kind of all I do and I research them and I, I, I hope to make someone see them in a new light. Um, so that, you know, you can be accused uh, with that kind of art of, of making nothing. Um, one of my favorite pieces of art that could, you know, suffer from the same accusation, um, this is a, a map by Eleanor Coppola, who is the wife of uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Um, and it is a map for a specific day in which uh, participants were uh, asked to visit these different locations, and they all have store windows. And um, it was just called Windows. And on this specific day, you're supposed to go and just look in the window, and that was the art. Um, and it's a public art piece, but if you think about how public art pieces normally feel, they're like a giant steel sculpture in the middle of a corporate plaza that feels very decontextualized and is very like, I made some art, here it is. Um, and this is more like, oh no, there's something, like I'm just going to frame your experience so that you see something in a new light. Um, and then uh, one, one other related example, this is a piece um, by my friend Scott Pollock, um, called Applause Encouraged, and uh, people would signed up to be ushered into this space right before the sunset. They watched the sunset, they applauded, and then they were served refreshments. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is the kind of art that I like um, and that I try to make. So you can see, you know, ma making nothing. So, uh, so yeah, I was sitting in the, the Rose Garden and I started thinking about uh, what the architecture of nothing would be if there were such a thing. Um, and I was struck by this particular garden. It has um, a kind of labyrinthine quality to it. It's, um, it's not very big, but the way it's designed makes it possible to spend a really long time there walking around and sitting in different places. It also has a really interesting mix of cultivated elements, but also wild elements like oak trees. Um, and, and overall, I was, um, it just struck me not only as a space of wandering, but of care and maintenance, because you'll often see volunteers doing um, gardening there. Um, this kind of ethic of care and maintenance. Um, and and that in, in terms of that design, um, I was thinking about labyrinths in general and how they allow you to not quite stand still and not move through a space, but actually do something in between. I think there's um, a lot of similarity with the idea of just going for a walk instead of walking to a place, especially trying to get there on time. Um, going for a walk, uh, you've achieved your goal if you're walking. <laughs> you're, you're already walking. Um, so, uh, and then as for a, a kind of auditory example of this, uh, non-spatial non or non-visual, um, I was really inspired by the composer Pauline Oliveros. 
um, who was a classically trained um, composer, but moved into um, this thing that she called deep listening, um, and also you know various improvisational performances. But deep listening for her was a practice of listening as much as possible to everything that you could possibly listen to around you, including your own thoughts. So it's not just outward, it's outward and inward. Um, and that for her, the point of doing that was that our culture privileges judgment and an analysis over listening and receiving, and that we, because of that, we need to specifically practice that second mindset. Um, and I realized that I um, had in, uh, uh, unintentionally learned deep listening through the practice of bird watching, um, or as I call it, bird noticing. Because if you are a bird watcher, you know that half or if not more of the time you hear something first and then you look for it. Um, and so, um, and, and the, other, the other thing I just wanna mention about uh, bird watching is that I use binoculars as an example of technology when I talk to my students at Stanford um, because I think it's really easy to draw a hard line around what we think is technology, but binoculars are a form of like augmented vision um, that allow me to see things that I can't see with a, you know, a unaided eye. Um, so, yeah, deep listening uh, was something that I realized I already had a connection with, but hadn't really thought into, uh, very specifically about. Um, and I was also thinking about um, the granularity of attention. I had this embarrassing moment where I realized that my, my mom speaks three languages, not two. Um, so for almost, uh, up until I was, you know, basically an adult, I thought that my mom was only speaking English and Tagalog. And the only reason I thought that was that anything that wasn't, uh, English sounded like to call it to me <laughs> that she was speaking. And then at some point, um, I realized she was actually speaking three languages, and I asked her to say the same thing in each one. And they're, as you can see, they're completely different. Um, and they're not dialects, they are distinct languages. Um, this is a map of languages in the Philippines. Um, which you know, a lot of people just think like, oh, people in the Philippines speak Tagalog, right? So I think there's something really instructive in this feeling of embarrassment. <laughs> Where you you thought that one you know thought the two things were one thing and then you realize it's actually ten things it's actually twenty things, and it's simply a function of your patience and how much time you spend like staring at something or listening to something like inevitably you're going to realize that you don't actually know it but that takes time and that's obviously time that's being closed down right now. So on that note of time being closed down, um, I I was sitting in the rose garden also thinking about how public space seems kind of like the corollary to free time and how free time and public space are threatened by the same phenomena. Uh, I was very inspired by the, the uh, 19th century movement for the eight-hour workday. This is the kind of graphic that went with that movement. And I just want to point out that in eight hours for what we will, they're reading a union newspaper, <laughs> which I think is very key. Um, and, and the other thing I want to point out is that uh, what we will is not defined. It's not eight hours for self-improvement. <laughs> it's eight hours for what we will. Uh, could be education, could be leisure, could be whatever. The whole point is like it's dark space, right? It's not defined, uh, that is uh, up to the individual. Um, and so, you know, just as a park fails to make money or produce demonstrable results, uh, you know, free time is kind of subjected, increasingly subjected to the same mentality uh, until we get this. Um, <laughs> this is my graphic. Um, 24 potentially monetizable hour in which, hours in which each individual is imagined to be an entrepreneur. And uh, you can find innovative, innovative ways of foregoing sleep and taking care of oneself. I just want to read, this is from the original um, talk, and it's also chapter one of the book. 
In a situation where every waking moment has become the time in which we make our living, and when we submit even our leisure for numerical evaluation via likes on Facebook and Instagram, constantly checking on its performance like one checks a stock, monitoring the ongoing development of our personal brand, time becomes an economic resource that we can no longer justify spending on nothing. It provides no return on investment. It is simply too expensive. This is a cruel confluence of time and space. Just as we lose non-commercial spaces, we also see all of our own time and our actions as potentially commercial. Just as public space gives way to faux public retail spaces or weird corporate privatized parks, so we are sold the idea of compromised leisure, a freemium leisure that is a very far cry from what we, what we will. There was a period of time where I was an artist in residence at the Internet Archive in San Francisco, and I was going through old Byte magazines, and Byte magazine was like a hobbyist computing magazine in the 80s and 90s, and I found this amazing ad of the Power Lunch, which is all about the convenience of working from home. Uh, I, also, I think it's funny that like the graph is going up, like obviously, you know, more productivity, um, and that he has not touched his lunch and is drinking milk. I mean, no judgment, but that's... Uh, so, the, so you have this ad, right, and then, you know, now we have this ad, which seems like the natural outgrowth of the other one. Um, sure, many people are familiar with this ad campaign, but it was all over the Oakland BART stations, in which uh, you're uh, taking time to eat and sleep are, like, ridiculed. Like, not only not valued, but ridiculed. Um, and for me, this kind of reached a new register after 2016. So, you know, on top of work, the same means by which we give over our hours and days are the same ones in, with which we assault ourselves with information and misinformation at a rate that is frankly inhumane to anyone who thinks about it for any amount of time. There's a really weird turning point in the talk where um, it, I started talking about birds. But you have to trust me on that. Um, in this moment of like the Edward Munch, like the scream uh, of, of that like last tweet, um, I also simultaneously started noticing not just birds in general, but particular birds in my neighborhood. Um, so some of them are these night herons, which um, hang out around the KFC, although the KFC just closed. So I'm not sure what's going on right now. But um, if you've never seen a night heron, I know you have them here. They're in Central Park. Um, I you know, keep tabs on the night herons. Um, but they're really um, weird birds. They're very grumpy looking, and um, they are herons, but they never stick their necks out. Um, and they're, they're just very stoic, and they just don't move. Like, they just sit in one spot. And I noticed that they were just there all day and all night. Uh, I also have, like, probably hundreds and hundreds of photos that look just like this. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know that a lot of my account looks like this. Um, so I started modifying my route home from the bus, specifically to pass by the KFC, just to see. I know they're there, but I just there's something about seeing them there that's very reassuring. Um, and it gave me access to like another scale of time, uh, not to mention a non-human perspective. This is um, May 2011, Google Street View. Um, it's they're still there. <laughs> Um, there's a second one in the back, and you see it. Night herons have actually been in this in the what is now Oakland since before Oakland was a city. Um, it was marshland, so for me, they're kind of uh, ghosts of this marshy past, um, and the, they're they're persisting into the present in a way that I find very comforting. 
And then the other set of birds was uh, Pear, which is now a group of crows uh, that I befriended on my street because I had just read a book about, uh, it's called The Genius of Birds, and it's about how birds are you know, way more intelligent than we gave them credit for, but crows in particular recognize human faces. Um, they can teach their children who the good and bad humans are. Um, they, they've been documented making tools. Like They're very intelligent and they have personalities. And so I, I spent a really long time trying to get the attention of these crows with peanuts um, on my balcony. And uh, I'm proud to say I still know them and I see them all the time. And they sometimes stop me on the street because they recognize me and know that I have peanuts. So uh, I'm just gonna read a quick, uh, one, another excerpt from the talk slash chapter one um, about looking at these crows looking at me. These alien animal perspectives on me and our shared world have provided me not only with an escape hatch from contemporary anxiety, but also a reminder of my own animality and the animateness of the world that I live in. Their flights enable my own literal flights of fancy, recalling a question that one of my favorite authors, David Abram, asks in Becoming Animal. Quote, do we really believe that the human imagination can sustain itself without being startled by other shapes of sentience? Strange as it sounds, this explained my need to go to the Rose Garden after the election. What was missing from that surreal and terrifying torrent of information and virtuality was any regard, any place for the human animal, situated as she is in time and a physical environment with other human and non-human entities. It turns out that groundedness requires actual ground. Um, which may seem obvious, but for me it was a really big turning point. So, uh, so the rest of that, um, that talk kind of uh, was about the tools that doing nothing can give us, although I'm very careful not to instrumentalize the idea of doing nothing as some kind of life hack. Um, one was just the idea of self-care, and I mean self-care not in the goop sense, but <laughs> this, the, the sense that before it was commodified, just like actual care of the self in, in almost like an activist sense, like in order to ultimately accomplish something later. Um, a self-care that prepares the self for action. Um, in the sense that Audre Lorde um, talks about uh, self-care. Um, and then another uh, thing that I think it, it can, can help with is um, a, it can provide an antidote to the rhetoric of growth. Um, so in nature, things that grow unchecked are considered parasitic or cancerous, and yet we live in a culture that routinely privileges novelty and growth over the cyclical and the regenerative. Um, and our very idea of productivity is premised on the idea of producing something entirely new, whereas we don't see things like maintenance and care as productive in the same way, although we also understand that those things underwrite the possibility of everything else. Um, so again, to come back to the Rose Garden, um, I, I spend a lot of time there, and so I also see a lot of maintenance happening. And it's not uncommon to see visitors to the park go up to these um, volunteers and thank them um, because we all need the rose garden. Um, but they're not, you know, like they're not producing anything new. They're keeping it the same. Um, and here, I was really also inspired by an artist named Mirale Laterman Eucles, who has been an artist in residence with the New York Sanitation Department for a really long time. Uh, her work centers on maintenance. So you can see here she's uh, washing the steps of the exhibiting institution. She spent 11 months shaking hands with and thanking 8,500 sanitation workers in New York and telling each one of them, thank you for keeping New York City alive. And so she wrote an exhibition proposal um, in the late 60s after becoming a mother. 
Uh, and the exhibition proposal was basically that she would exhibit her work that she does as a mother. So she, I think she has a sentence in here that says, like, my work is the work. Um, and she distinguishes um, these two instincts, which she calls the death instinct and the life instinct. Um, and you can see the definitions here. One is to kind of go, go your own path, like create something new, um, do your own thing, dynamic change. Um, the life instinct is the kind of like cyclical, regenerative, maintenance, care side of things. Uh, obviously, you need some amount of both, but one of these is a lot more valorized than the other one is. It also sounds a lot like disrupt to me. Um, and so, um, coming back to the rose garden, I, I kind of had her in mind as I was looking at this one part of the garden that's called Mother of the Year. So every year since the 1950s, uh, the city votes on the Mother of the Year, um, who is someone who's contributed to the overall well-being of Oakland residents. And uh, here you can see um, you know, little uh, plaques for each decade, and it actually goes up to 2050, so there's blank slots. Um, and in, the ceremony happens on Mother's Day. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I talked about mothers in the context of work that sustains and maintains, but I don't obviously think that one needs to be a mother in order to experience that maternal impulse. If anyone here has seen the Fred Rogers documentary, like you know what I'm talking about. Um, but I also was thinking about um, a book, oops, let's see. Uh, I don't have that slide. Uh, there's a book by Rebecca Solnit called Paradise Built in Hell. Uh, which is about the aftermath of different man-made and natural disasters in which, uh, contrary to every man for himself, people actually um, came together in really surprising and innovative ways and sometimes with a sense of humor even and created really amazing and flexible structures of support, oftentimes like meeting their neighbors for the first time um, and surprising themselves with what, with what they were capable of. And I think like that is the sort of impulse that I'm talking about. Um, so I, I ended by suggesting that we take a protective stance toward ourselves and each other, that we protect our spaces and our time for non-instrumental, non-commercial activity and thought for maintenance, for care, and for conviviality, and that we fiercely protect our human animality against all technologies and rhetorics that actively ignore and disdain the body, the bodies of others, and the body of the land that we physically inhabit. Um, and I. Uh, at the very end of that talk, I played a, a recording of Thunder by Gordon Hempton, who's an acoustic ecologist. So that, that was pretty much the talk. I put it up as a medium post, mostly just as documentation. I wasn't expecting that many people to read it outside of the conference, um, and I was really surprised by how much it appeared to resonate with people from you know, all different backgrounds. And, um, and so not that long after that, um, Adam Greenfield, who wrote Radical Technologies, emailed me, and so this is all his fault. Um, he put the idea in my head of um, turning it into a book, which I'm not sure that would have occurred to me otherwise, and you know, helped you know, get me some example book proposals and really just like got the ball rolling for me, and so I'm super grateful to him for that. Um, and so the next part of my life looked like this. Um, <laughs> This is like me trying to figure out like um, what's you know what's the extension of this argument, um, and I ultimately decided to not expand the sections of the talk, but just keep the talk as chapter one, and then um, kind of pursue the idea further from there. 
Um, when I pitched my book, I described it as I described it as John Muir for the Fiverr age. And I wrote in the introduction that it's important for me to link my critique of the attention economy to the promise of bioregional awareness, which is something I talk about later in the book, because I believe that capitalism, colonialist thinking, loneliness, and an abusive stance toward the environment all co-produce one another. It's also important because of the parallels between what the economy does to an ecological system and what the attention economy does to our attention. Um, so I'm going to really briefly, like very briefly, just mention what the other chapters are about um, so you have some idea. Um, after you get to the end of chapter one, you may want to head for the hills. Um, so chapter two is blocking the exits. Um, it's called The Impossibility of Retreat. Um, and it's about a bunch of different things. The School of Epicurus, which was the kind of um, you know, early example of a retreat to uh, uh, outside of the city, uh, kind of utopian community. Also 1960s communes and just the problem of attempting to retreat altogether from politics and society because I'm trying to disentangle that impulse from the desire to disengage from the attention economy. Um, and I, that's also the chapter where I talk about Thomas Merton uh, who was a 20th century Catholic monk, monk slash hermit um, and is an example of someone who existed on the fringes but stayed deeply polit politically engaged in his time. So he wrote a lot about specific political issues and was kind of taking the Catholic Church to, to task for abandoning its so social justice roles. Um, and he wrote in a book called Contemplation in a World of Action, um, if I had no choice about the age in which I was to live, I nevertheless have a choice about the attitude I take and about the way and the extent of my participation in its living and ongoing events. To choose the world is an acceptance of a task and a vocation in the world, in history and in time, in my time, which is the present. Um, and so that's kind of what uh, I use to articulate this idea of resistance in place, which is where you don't leave, you don't head for the hills, you find a way of resisting, um, becoming a weird shape that can't be so easily appropriated um, where you are. Um, and then the uh, next chapter is called Anatomy of a Refusal, which I open by talking about this amazing performance piece by uh, Pilvi Takala, who's a Finnish artist who got a job as a marketing intern at Deloitte and then proceeded to do nothing. Um, uh, she would sit at her desk staring into space, and she would also ride the elevators up and down. Uh, and when asked what she was doing, she said she was doing thought work. Um, and in the elevator, I think she said, sometimes it's good to see things from a different perspective. Um, so uh, the, actually, the epigraph to that chapter is an email that somebody in the company sent about how there's that weird intern who's <laughs> staring into space, and it's marked urgent, <laughs> which I find very telling. Um, and the curatorial text also says, like, actually doing nothing at work is a commonplace, um, but you would expect someone to be, like, looking at Facebook or, like, something. But it's the image of someone doing nothing that is, like, very, makes people uncomfortable. Um, Similarly, I think I'm basically like comparing her to Diogenes, who some of you may know, but uh, was an ancient uh, Greek cynic philosopher. Um, and this is a painting of a very famous Diogenes moment. He lived in a barrel and uh, had almost no possessions, and would just kind of do do the opposite of what the what any convention was. He would just kind of do the opposite. And this is um, Alexander the Great coming to visit this like well-known philosopher. And he's saying, like, is, I'm, I'm so happy to meet you. Is there anything I can do for you? And Diogenes says, like, yes, stand out of my light. <laughs> um, like, you're in my sun. <laughs> Get out of the way. Um, 
And then, uh, you know, another example would be Tom Green on his public access TV show, Lying on the Ground, um, just like for quite a while. Um, and just these, these are all examples of like an in individual refusal, right? Like somebody who is highlighting the contours of a, uh, an accepted custom simply by not doing it um, and reminding us of the possibility of not doing something. Um, but of course, there's a limit to how much individual refusal can achieve. So it's really important for me to also talk in that chapter about the general strike in 1934 in San Francisco, which started with a, a longshoreman strike. Um, and, and so I, I'm, I'm trying to build this bridge from individual refusal and the amount of focus and attention and discipline that it takes to collective refusal, which it almost requires a second order type of concentration and alignment and attention within a group. It's also just a really amazing event in terms of images of refusal um, during the longshoreman strike. Basically, there was a, a skirmish between strike supporters and the police, and two people were killed. And during the originally small memorial down Market Street for those two people, more and more people joined in to this procession until it was like hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of people um, silently marching down Market Street. And the image of this refusal is what set off the general strike. Um, in which 150,000 people around the Bay Area walked off the job. So it's just an, an amazing kind of example of that collective refusal. Also, it's, a, it's important for me to talk about this because I think there's a lot of parallels between this moment in which you have individual um, longshoremen who have horrible work schedules and have no job security um, and are powerless to resist inhumane working conditions with something like the gig economy now, um, where you have people in a very similar situation. Chapter four is about uh, exercises and attention. This is like the art chapter. Um, I, again, I teach art, I am an artist. Um, and so this is all kind of just about how um, different types of experiences, and you know, my examples are from art, but all kinds of things can teach you how to proliferate your attention, um, deepen your attention. I think the attention economy takes attention for granted and it treats it like currency and it assumes that it's all the same and it's all shallow and that uh, doesn't have to be true. I think you can practice different kinds of attention. And it's also where I start talking about bioregionalism because for me, when I started deepening my attention, the thing that became apparent to me was that I don't live nowhere and I don't live in a simulation. I live in a place, um, that place has a material reality that precedes humans. Um, and so I talk about a creek that I grew up next to without ever really noticing. It also goes through the Apple campus, which is really weird. Um, and going back and kind of like tracing that and, um, and letting it lead me to this whole awareness of like the actual shape of the place that I live in. Um, so this is me and my friend who also grew up on that creek uh, sneaking into uh, Calabasas Creek. And then the, let's see, the second to last chapter is called Ecology of Strangers. And that's um, kind of my attempt to think outside like what is the opposite version of the self from a personal brand? And what do you encounter when you step outside of not literally your filter bubble, but just like the filter bubble kind of way of thinking in which things are only of interest to you because they should be or they have something to offer you in terms of self-improvement. So it's really just about being surprised, um, willingness to be surprised um, and to acknowledge an ecological model of the self where you are not only determined by your relationships to others, but you are um, you're a shape-shifting kind of uh, intersection of different influences at any given time. This is actually from a different talk that I gave, but I think kind of gets to, uh, to this point where there's um, a really big difference between um, this more ecological self versus as a thought experiment, if you imagine following um, all of your algorithmic recommendations 
forever, <laughs> um, you might end up in a very stabilized um, pattern of likes and dislikes that incidentally would be very easy to advertise to. Um, and then the last chapter is restoring the grounds for thought. I'm trying to draw, the, again, this parallel between ecology and what happens online um, by talking about the importance of context and also context collapse. So I think ecology is a really great way to learn, relearn the importance of context um, in any ecology. Any part of it is uh, really hard to define as an individual entity because it's so, you know, like symbiotic relationships are an example, but. Um, you know, the, the fact that things in an ecology can't really be extricated from time or space um, and still mean the same thing. And obviously that kind of, to me, reminds me of things like statements taken out of context on Twitter and then very quickly, you know, like uh, there's a huge pile on of like collective outrage and no one wants to take the time to actually look into the context of that. Um, and then I also, uh, I, you know, context collapse is a term that was coined by Dana Boyd, who's a media scholar, but she cites this book a lot. And so... Um, in this book, uh, there is a thought experiment at the beginning where the author says, and this is before the internet, imagine if you went on vacation and you, you came back and you, would have, you obviously would have a different version of your story for your friends, your family, and your employer. Um, and then imagine if someone threw you a surprise party and all of those people are in the room. What's the version of the story you tell them? It's either going to be really boring and banal and uninteresting to everyone, or you're going to offend someone. And that's like just a perfect example, right, of context collapse on something like Twitter, where um, you don't necessarily know who your audience is. Like you could become a pariah or a celebrity overnight. Um, none of these people know you as an individual. Um, they only know the sort of like one expression that you've made. Um, and so, yeah, it, basically this whole chapter is just about the importance of context and and thinking about reintroducing. Like if there's context collapse, what is the opposite of that? Can you like restore context? And my suggestion is that whatever that ends up being, it's going to look a lot like group chats, in-person meetings, like different levels of collected contexts. But it's not going to be this like shouting into the void. And it's also not going to be things that are reverse engineered by what will get the most likes and the most engagement. Um, so uh, just to wrap up, I, I want to clear up a couple of possible misconceptions about my book. Um, one is that uh, it could be seen as an anti-technology book. Um, it's not. I have a long-standing interest, especially in the classes that I teach, in uh, proposing you know, or looking at technology as a tool that can be used one way or another. Um, and so an example of that is iNaturalist, which is uh, my favorite app uh, in that I feel like I plug in like every interview that I do about this book. Um, it's like Shazam for plants. Basically, you can take a picture of a plant and it'll use machine learning to suggest some possible um, identifications and then it's confirmed or denied by a person, usually within a couple days. And, uh, and so you might see me on a hike with my phone out and think that's really depressing, but I'm actually using it to like, you know, this is a really, really big deal for me in terms of bioregionalism and learning about native species around me. I don't think I would have been able to do it Without this, and on top of that, there is a community in iNaturalist. I just went to an iNaturalist happy hour, and I got to meet in person um, someone who had been confirming a lot of my identifications. Um, and then, uh, um, at the same time, I don't think, it's not an anti-technology book, but it's also not a technology book. Um, I think it's primarily an environmentalist book. Um, uh, I have to talk about things like social media and the attention economy in order to address 
ultimately our alienation from the more than human world. That's really what I care about in the book. Um, and it is ultimately like a story of me figuring out where I am. And it's also a love letter to that place and all of the things that live there. There's a really important part of the book where I go to Elkhorn Slough, which has, um, you know, amazing bird life. And the fact that the word slough in English means uh, an unproductive area, <laughs> I just find like a really nice irony. And then uh, lastly, um, it's not a self-help book. Uh, maybe that's obvious by now. Um, it's not a book about how to be creative. It's not a book about how to do nothing in order to later be more productive. Um, it's none of these things. Um, and so I'll just end um, on that note by talking about um, a story that's in the introduction of the book, um, which is a Taoist story by Zhuangzi. Um, it's called the, the Useless Tree, or it's translated as the Useless Tree. And, um, and so in the story, a carpenter comes across this really huge gnarled tree and sort of disdainfully observes that it's only gotten to be that size because it's a weird shape and it's useless as timber. And, um, and then he goes to sleep, has a dream, and the tree comes to him in the dream and basically makes fun of him uh, and says, who are you to call me useless? You're a mortal human, you will die. Um, and I, uselessness has been very useful for me because I'm still alive. Um, and it's ultimately like a joke about the narrowness of our ideas of usefulness that we might even think we know what is useful or what is productive. I'm really interested in asking when you say productive, like productive of what, for whom, and why. Um, and so there's a detail at the very beginning of that story that I only noticed on a second reading, which is that the tree is so big that it's sheltering a ton of you know, oxen and horses, and it's actually very useful in supporting life, but a carpenter would not be able to see that. And there's a real version of this tree in Oakland, which is called Old Survivor. It's the last remaining old growth redwood, um, and it was a weird shape, so it didn't get cut down. It's also kind of on a weird rocky outcrop, so you, it's hard to get to it, and it's this reminder of, you know, here you go, it's literally, it was use, use, uh, uselessness was very useful for this tree. So uh, I'll end by just um, quoting the, my end of that useless tree story in the book. Um, I want to imagine a whole forest of useless trees, branches densely interwoven, providing an impenetrable habitat for birds, snakes, lizards, squirrels, insects, fungi, and lichen. And eventually through this generous, shaded, and useless environment, might come a wary traveler from the land of usefulness, a carpenter who has laid down his tools. Maybe after a bit of dazed wandering, he might take a cue from the animals and have a seat beneath an oak tree. Maybe for the first time ever, he'd take a nap. Thanks. Uh, I have a question about your uh, putting things on shelves. Are you, have, are you, um, are you redefining what art is in terms of, usually people think of art as you have to create something like, but here you are in a sense not doing that. So are you redefining art at all? Um, I don't think I, I mean, I think that redefinition happened a long time ago and I'm just participating in it. Like the Duchamp, you know, Marcel Duchamp's like urinal, uh, what year was that? Uh, early 20th century, you know, there was like a movement of um, artists using ready-made objects and presenting them in new contexts. So a really famous one is, is a urinal that um, Marcel Duchamp put in a basically a gallery setting. Um, so that's something that I think has been happening for a long time. And um, I, think it's, I think it's very interesting that we still have, or the general public still has a lot of resistance 
to that idea of um, manipulate, manipulating context as a form of making. And I can see that, you know, it gets a little confusing, like, then it's hard to define what is art making and what is curating, and like, what's the difference between those two? But um, yeah, I think there's probably, I, when I look at art now, there's like a spectrum between that kind of two different ways of thinking about making, and one is the very kind of straightforward, making something, and the other one is making new contexts, and I just happen to skew really far towards that second one. I feel like here in New York, maybe even more than the Bay Area, we have this problem where people feel like they need to be doing something useful all the time. I know. I think curiosity can go a really long way towards like addressing a lot of problems. I'm a person who's very curious, and like you know, I like researching weird things and going down wormholes. Um, and so, actually directing that curiosity toward yourself in those moments, like why, like sitting with that feeling and being like, why? First of all, what is it I imagine myself that I'm supposed to be doing right now? Like why, um, and just kind of keep like asking those questions long enough uh, to just become aware of it. I think it makes it easier to disengage. But then I think it's not enough. I mean, the way my book is written is sort of like disengage and reengage. Um, and for me, something that's been really helpful lately is um, I think people want to feel helpful. I think, and I think that's good. That's a good thing. Um, and and directing that need somewhere where it can go and have traction is kind of the problem. And so I think a lot about the difference between like having a feeling of existential dread about climate change and, and like having that drive me towards social media out of this feeling of like fear and dissatisfaction and then just like giving myself more of the same feeling and also generating lots of revenue for a social media company um, versus like taking that feeling to like a meeting of a community activist group or, or like something where like you're in a room with people and you're doing something, you know what I mean? Even if the scale of the problem still seems really big, at least the scale at which you're investing your feelings and your, your anxiety and your despair, like it's something that can actually hold it. Yeah. yeah, so that's been helpful for me anyway. So when you mentioned you were from Oakland, I'm not from Oakland, I'm from here, but I lived in Oakland for a little bit. And when you put up the quote of like saying nothing or kind of limiting what you say amplifies the things you do say. And I thought of Marshawn Lynch and the NFL player who currently plays on the Raiders and his whole period of time where he would go to press conferences and say nothing to people asking questions and you just say, I'm just here to not get fined. And that was his like yeah. line. Yeah. <laughs> and he would give anyone who asked him, he would repeat it like seven or eight times during the press conference. People would get so upset at him. Um, and a lot of it, like, Sometimes it's coded to see this black man just deny people um, access to like everything he's feeling after playing a football game or whatever. Um, but I started to think about the criminalization of not doing anything, um, mm, especially yeah. like kind of when you talked about how like that quote from Audre Lorde and like how a lot of times doing nothing for black men especially, I live in Harlem, so that's just something I've seen all the time. Like I see kids get harassed by cops for sitting on park benches, like um, not doing, like doing nothing, like um, can actually be dangerous and not being aware and having your attention, like kind of analyzing a situation and making sure you're like consciously taking in information all the time can actually like um, not be dangerous to yourself, but like invite like harm upon you. And so, I guess my question is, is like, how can we all work together and build a world where doing nothing um, for everyone is okay um, and that you don't have to like 
you know, stand in front of your building and like be seen either as a problem or as a threat or like as like whatever trouble um, if you just decide to not do anything? Yeah, yeah, that's such a great question. And it's making me think about how much uh, it has to do with like, I think when someone does nothing, it makes them less legible. Like to, um, let's say, like uh, law enforcement or just any kind of like surveillance system, right? Like um, one of the one of the things that I compare in the book is like an actual public space, like a park, to um, City Walk, which is like a faux urban looking space, but it's actually part of um, Universal Studios. So it's kind of like an outdoor mall, and in order to act uh, the right way there, you'd be shopping. So if you're not shopping, you're like you're already kind of you're posing like a threat to the system, and I think it has something in common with that. Where it's like if and even this like act of not answering, right? It's like um, you become some, somehow like more opaque. And if there is like a system that is invested in um, legibility and being able to control and see what's going on all the time, like that will be seen as threatening. Um, I mean, it's one thing. It's one reason I think. Um, and one thing we, we can do together, I think, is just defend and expand certain types of public space um, because, you know, like you think about like going to, for instance, the Rose Garden um, and you stand and you do nothing there. No one feels threatened by that. Or I don't know. It's it's just it's more um, we like people go there understanding that that is a space for contemplation and not not doing anything. I mean, but at the same time, it's like that's not quite enough because you should be able to stand in front of your house and not have to be doing anything. So I don't know. I think like one, one piece of it is the kind of protection and expansion of public space, but it's certainly not the whole solution. You'd made a statement that really piqued my interest about the need for like a physical ground, like grounding the kind of double meaning. Um, and I can kind of think of in, in the context of like the disappearing commons, uh, the park's availability in certain urban communities, I think it seems like there's less options for that physical space. Um, in recontextualizing um, you know, our, our experiences, it seems that you have a real call for there to be that natural element, the physical element, if I didn't misread that. So can you maybe touch on that a bit more? Like some of, I guess the alternative being sort of a synthetic recontextualization where there isn't the physical aspect? Is, is there such a thing? Does it really require that natural element? And you know, where does that put us? Yeah, I do, yeah. I, at the end of the book, I, I mentioned that um, Oakland's a great example. Like, I mean, any city, you'll see this, right? Like the parks, there are more parks in part of the city than, than the other parts. Um, there are more parks in near the hills where a lot of really wealthy people live. Um, like their their access to natural spaces is a privilege, um, and you can you can read it in a map. Um, and so, but I but at the same time, like, I mean, I think some of context collection collection is just um, you know being in contact with others in a more focused way. But I really personally believe that the natural element is really an important part of it. And um, and so in order, like you, I think you can't talk about the attention economy without talking about public spaces and then you can't talk about public spaces without talking about like class and urban planning and things like that. And so it all kind of becomes this big knot um, that I think I even call it a knot, but at the same time, because all of these things are co-produced and related to each other, it also means, I mean, this is the hopeful thing that I take from it is that um, you can kind of 
find part of that to push on and know that it will affect other parts of it. So if you, um, like doing something like um, organizing for the protection of a park or the creation of a park does actually have a relationship to something like the attention economy, which might seem strictly technological. Understanding that your caveat that like this isn't a self-help book and you know the, having a goal for doing nothing is like defeats the whole purpose, but um, I find a lot of uh, overlaps between some of the things you're saying about focusing on how to do nothing and appreciating the space with like mindfulness and being present, things like that. Also understanding that parts of mindfulness seem like it's being monetized and optimized and things mm -hmm. like that. So I guess I was um, wondering what overlaps you kind of see in one part of my question. And the second part is kind of related to your, um, the answer you just gave around like, it sometimes feels like a privilege to be able to say like, I'm focusing on mindfulness or like trying to be present to even have that time to like think about it versus maybe people in low income areas or underrepresented, underrepresented people who don't have that time because they're working multiple yeah. jobs and things like that. So how would you respond to that kind of a claim? Yeah, um, so to the first part of your question, I don't um, expressly invoke like mindfulness as a discipline in the book almost because I feel like it's so obvious that I don't need to and um, anyone who has you know like a meditation practice or anything like that I think will very easily like recognize similarities with like even something like bird watching um, and so there's no real I'm not like you know actively trying to leave it out or anything it's almost just like it it's it's sort of in the background already in the, in the kinds of things that I'm talking about and then in terms of like, ha yeah, having the time and that being a privilege, um, that I talk about that in the chapter with the general strike um, because that strike happened after a law passed that made a uh, certain type of union and collective bargaining possible. So before that, um, you know, you had lots of people who were unhappy with the instability of their jobs and they were just totally beholden to um, the circumstances of hiring. Like maybe one day you have a shift that's three hours and the next day you have a shift that's 30 hours. And, um, but because they couldn't unionize, they, if you didn't do that, someone else would. Um, and then that law was a very important part of being able to unionize, which then you know, allowed them to band together and actually you know, uh, push against the system and institute like, you know, more humane hiring practices and, and schedules. Um, and sadly, that appears to have been an island of stability in what is like an ongoing story of just like crushing um, like every last margin that we have. Um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, it's, um, I think it's important for me in that chapter to acknowledge that, again, there's only so much that an individual can, can resist, right? Um, and that some people have more of a capacity to resist than others. Um, and so I refer to it as like a margin, like you may, and it also depends on where you are, like how repressive is the regime that you live in or like how, like wherever that is, um, can you like literally financially afford to refuse something? Um, and the you know I don't have a solution to the whole problem, but I just basically say that if you if you have the margin, uh, which I feel that I do, um, then you should also feel responsibility to use it um, to kind of what I was saying earlier that this big knot right like use that margin to first like disengage and and like you know, get out of that whole thing um, in order to think about like, okay, how can I actually like start to work on, on this thing? And, um, and that hopefully if enough people who did have the margin worked on it together, you would start to see more margin opening up for other people. I really liked your part in the book about bird noticing as a step into like bioregionalism and connection. And um, 
I went out to like Tompkins Square Park like a week ago and was like walking around alone and like had to get used to navigating uh, like being in a very public space and I don't know, just being that guy following bird sounds. But anyway, um, uh, I know you're from Oakland, but do you have any like parts of New York that you, you really like for bird noticing or other like general steps to get into bird noticing? Uh, I, I don't, I really don't know New York very well, but I will say that my friend Taeyun Choi, who um, is the co-founder of the School of Poetic Com Computing, Computation, um, who's also quoted in the book. Um, he loves Prospect Park, and he once made me a podcast for just me. I highly recommend like making a podcast for someone else, and um, it's just birds in Prospect Park. Like occasionally, he'll like talk about something, but like it's really just like bird sounds in the background. Based on that podcast, I would say that Prospect Park has sounds like it has a lot of birds. Um, but I also will say, like, I, um, I'm, like, a lazy bird noticer. Um, I, and I'm really, like, you know, long list of privileges, but I'm, like, privileged also to live in a place that is near a bay and hills, so we have so many different kinds of birds there. Um, and so there, there's a type of birder who will, like, go to a very specific t place at a specific time, like some migration event or something, to see a specific type of bird, and I'm, like, the opposite. Like I will, I am like an in, almost like an involuntary bird watcher where I get distracted by something on the way to do something else, and then I've been like staring into a tree for 20 minutes. So, um, and I, I also don't. I think that there's almost like a distinction that we draw between, let's say, like Yosemite and like the municipal park, where like one is somehow like much more hallowed than the other one. Um, and I think you could do the same thing with birds. Like there are rare birds, and then there's like crows. Um, and I, uh, for me, those sort of like mix together a lot more. Um, and so, I mean, I think looking at pigeons is bird watching, personally. But, um, but yeah, sadly, I don't have any like specific locations for you other than Prospect Park. So uh, a lot of the, I guess, the phenomena that you kind of group under the term uh, the attention economy, there's also, I think, kind of a lot of recent literature that'll use the term surveillance capitalism or surveillance economy. And so I was curious about, I guess, sort of the choice to use one term or another, and uh, I guess kind of how you see the relationship between those two concepts, you know, one sort of being more of a political project versus like an interior kind of mode of being. So the book Surveillance Capitalism had not come out yet sure. uh, when I wrote my book. Um, I also have, I bought it, but I have not read Surveillance Capitalism yet. It's a, it's a tome. Um, yeah, I, um, so it wasn't, I didn't really choose one over the other, um, but I think that um, I think that I probably would still have chosen attention economy because what I'm talking about is the sort of small amount of control that you do have over your, like, wielding your attention. Like, I think that chapter that I mentioned that has all the art pieces in it is really about, um, you know, like, for example, I talk about a John Cage piece that I saw at a symphony that uses all kinds, if you've ever seen a John Cage piece, it's like, the most non-traditional orchestra setup. There's like someone shuffling cards. The orchestra conductor is making a milkshake in a blender because that's part of the score. Um, the liner notes say like this piece will be anywhere from 15 minutes to 30 minutes depending on what happens. Like uh, it's very non-traditional. Um, and that after I saw that piece, I went outside um, and I heard a bunch of things for the first time. And I still don't hear things the same way as before I saw that piece. And to me, that has to do with attention in a really a way that's specific to attention, if that makes sense. 
Um, and it's and to me, like rediscovering some agency and being able to take hold of one's attention and kind of move it around and, and proliferate different kinds of it is, um, it's almost like I feel like that's the last leeway that we have within this hugely oppressive system. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle at talks at Google. Talk soon. <laughs>